time for swordplay. Alex, the Pope recently told Moroccan Catholics that their mission was not to convert their Muslim neighbors, but to live in brotherhood with them. How have you been living in brotherhood with your neighbors? By converting them. Infidel! <laughs> Die heretic! <laughs> this is Swordplay, season two, mind you. And we are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. And I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, Ruth chapter one. That's right. We're going to do an introduction and chapter one, and then we'll stop there. So maybe it won't be quite so long of a marathon study, but I'm looking forward to it. New season, Nick. It's exciting. We have a new segment in store for the audience today, don't we? That's right, and we'll get to that in a little bit. And by the way, if you're tuning in and you're like, season two, I missed season one. (laughs) Well, there's a couple things you can do. One, you can go back and listen to season one. It's all available online in the various... uh, stores uh, but it's also good because even if you miss season one you can still jump right in that's right not really miss a beat so just like most of the marvel comic universe movies you don't have to see the previous ones to enjoy the current release so there we go although you might disagree with that nick i don't know well maybe to see endgame you might want to see infinity (laughs) but yeah pretty much pretty much all the one time. One time. <laughs> All right. Where are we at? Okay. Well, we better jump into these questions, Nick. Uh, as always, when we get into a new book, we need to ask, who wrote the book? So, Nick, who wrote the book of Ruth? So, the end of the book has a genealogy of David, chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. And so, this has uh, led many to say that the book must have been written sometime after the beginning of David's reign. Uh, One author said that the uh, book was probably written by Samuel. Uh, And in fact, there's Jewish tradition in the Talmud. It's very matter-of-fact. It says Samuel wrote the books which bear his name and the book of Judges and Ruth. Uh, Now, there are others who are maybe a bit more measured. Uh, For example, one writer says... Though Jewish tradition assigned Ruth to the prophet Samuel, scholarship has remained properly silent on the subject. The author is unknown. Nevertheless, commentators have assigned a male gender for the storyteller, an assumption not unchallenged. So, uh, you have a couple different ideas there. One is definitely Samuel. The other is someone else, probably a dude. Uh, But, uh, yeah, that's, that's a bit about who wrote Ruth. That makes sense? Yeah, and of course, this is going to dovetail into uh, one of our questions here in just a minute as to why the book was written. So before we get there, though, Nick, why don't you tell us a little bit about the date? When was Ruth written? Well, if the author is elusive, so too is the date. Uh, But here's the thing. Whatever you believe about who wrote the book is probably going to inform or at least influence when you date the book. Right. And so... Uh, For example, there are those who say that the book of Ruth was written way later in um, the time of the exile or even after the exile uh, to Babylon. Uh, So that's been put forward, and that's due primarily to discrepancies with the Deuteronomic law. That is, some differences between how Ruth 
or the, the author of Ruth read the law of Deuteronomy and kind of what shows up in the book itself um, of Deuteronomy. For example, um, the uh, Leverite law that's going to play a big role in the book of Ruth. There's some differences in what happens in the book of Ruth versus what you read in the book of Deuteronomy about how that gets carried out. Sure. But um, on the other hand, there are others who argue for a date that is before the exile, uh, probably even reaching back to the 10th century all the way to the 7th century B.C. Uh, So they detect these uh, linguistic features, uh, classical prose, legal and theological perspectives that kind of fit that earlier period of time. Uh, And so with that earlier date, of course, would mean Samuel could have written it or some other contemporary around that time could have put pen to parchment and written this book. So it is one of those things that's kind of like with the author, an exact date is kind of uh, difficult to achieve. Sure. And they all go together. So the author will influence your answer for the date, but the date will also influence your answer for the purpose. So what is the purpose for the book of Ruth? Why was Ruth written, Nick? What's interesting is that even when you get the differences in the dating of the book, most scholars kind of fall toward uh, the purpose of the book of Ruth being an apology for the Davidic kingdom. And that is, they, it's a defense of David and his, uh, his reign, his rule as king. And so uh, one commentator argues the purpose of the book was to authenticate the royal lineage, and he does that through this four-act drama, which is the book of Ruth. Uh, specifically, and I quote, the author's aim is to explain how, in the providence of God, the divinely chosen king could emerge from the dark period of the judges. And so uh, that's that's pretty standard fare for what you get uh, for purpose of the book. Uh, other writers talk about how it, it, this book may be justification for including a godly Moabitess into the nation of Israel. That's Ruth, by the way, as we'll, right. we'll talk about in a few minutes. But uh, pretty well solid purpose there of we want to justify or authenticate the Davidic rule um, in in Israel. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, we know this side of the cross that if Ruth is in the lineage uh, preceding David, and if David is this messianic prototype then when we get to Jesus, the fulfillment of all the kingly promises made to David and an heir of his that would sit on the throne forever, who's in Jesus' genealogy? Matthew chapter 1 includes Ruth, doesn't he? That's right. Yeah. So this is a still relevant question for us today. But, of course, we know a little bit more about the inclusion of Gentiles and the purpose and mystery of the gospel. Well, let's dive into Ruth chapter 1. We see in verse 1, it talks about the setting of the story, right? It's in the days of the judges, and a famine is in the land, and there was a man in Bethlehem, and he took his family to sojourn in the land of Moab. He took his wife and his two sons. Now, what do we know, Nick, about the land of Moab, especially in this day and time? 
<laughs> yeah, it's funny. There's a there's a restaurant here in town called Moab. Is it really? Yeah, it's an acronym <laughs> for Meal on a Bun. Uh, anyway, huh? Um, I think I've eaten there one time. Moab. <laughs> yeah, that Moab is different than this Moab. Um, this Moab was southeast of the Promised Land. It was just on the other side of what is called either the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. So if the whole surrounding area of the west and east banks around the Jordan River were compared to the state of, oh, I don't know, Minnesota, Alex, Moab would be right around where the Twin Cities are. I see. And so uh, Moab, it's interesting. In the book of Psalms, Psalm 60, verse 8, Psalm 108, verse 9, Moab is actually called the wash basin of the God of Israel. And, of course, the wash wash basin back then was used for washing feet. Huh. And so Moab is where Yahweh washed his feet. So huh. not exactly... Is that complimentary? Uh, or? <laughs> yeah, probably not. Uh, not but, a compliment? Uh, that's a bit about Moab. What else you got, Alex? Uh, well, just some basic info. You know, it's good to remember that the Moabites were the descendants of Lot. Lot was Abraham's nephew, and so they are relatives to the Israelites. Uh, the history between Israel and Moab is pretty sketchy, especially by this time uh, in which we, we read about Ruth. Um, Moabite women, if you remember back in the days of Moses and Joshua, as they were in their wilderness wandering and preparing for the uh, Canaanite conquest, Moabite women were used to lure the Israelite men to uh, commit adultery at Beth Peor, sometimes referred to as Baal Peor. Mm. And that uh, scheme was concocted by uh, the evil... uh, Balaam or Baalam of uh, uh, who was he son of a Beor and he was basically trying to get his payday from Balak and um, he couldn't directly curse the Israelites right and so he had to find a way around to get the Israelites to curse themselves so the Moabite women were sent in they lured these men into uh, idolatrous relationships with them uh, a lot of uh, dark Uh, evil ritual uh, idolatry took place and that event ends up being considered uh, one of the worst if not the worst even worse than the golden calf incident in the history of israel and i early idolatry that you see there um, even before they are settled into the promised land and that might be because of the moabites god now of course there, there are many gods around the lands and so the moabites have several gods but one of their gods, Molech, sometimes called Milcom or Chemosh, uh, that god is known for child sacrifice. So it's possible that what we see here is the Israelites offering up child sacrifice even during the days of Moses. Mm. And that's pretty dark. And so the dark history and idolatrous nature of Moab would definitely throw into question the legitimacy of Ruth in the lineage of the anointed David. And I think that definitely has something to do with the purpose of the book. What do you think, Nick? No, that, yeah, that makes sense. Um, definitely, definitely strong uh, connection there. 
Well, the story opens up and also tells us, you know, what the problem is, what sets this journey. And there's a famine in the land. Nick, what significance is there to mentioning a famine in the land? So famine was typically a sign of judgment from God uh, upon his people for faithlessness to the covenant. And you can see, for example, Leviticus 26, verses 18 through 20, Deuteronomy 28, 23 through 24, right. uh, for more information on that. So for there to be a famine in the land, that means that God's people are under judgment. And uh, it's interesting also, Bethlehem, the name Bethlehem means house of bread. And so you have kind of this uh, idea of the house of bread has no bread as well. Sure. Uh, when it comes to the famine. So famine was a pretty serious business back in the day. And like any good story, irony abounds, right? That's right. <laughs> so we see later on, um, just a few verses down, verse 4, that the two sons of Naomi, you have Naomi's husband, whose name is Elimelech, Naomi, their two sons are Malin and Kilion. They take wives for themselves. They each take a Moabite wife. Now, Nick, was it breaking the law for these uh, Israelite men to take Moabite wives? You know, the law was pretty explicit on this point. Jewish boys did not take foreign girls for wives. Exodus 34 verse 16, Deuteronomy 7 verse 3 uh, makes that uh, pretty clear. Uh, and that's part of it is wanting to keep the, the bloodline pure. I mean, we're talking about God achieving his eternal purpose of bringing Messiah into the world, and he does that through his special select people. Um, so so that's that plays into that a little <coughs> bit here. Um, but this is the judges period. You know, everyone is doing what seems right in their own eyes uh, because, as we're told in verse 1, it was in the days when the judges ruled. Uh, so... So you have that. Also, it's interesting, uh, the the boys and the Moabite wives, they don't have any children. And so it seems like there's some barrenness involved, which uh, may be suggestive of divine displeasure. I mean, under the law, Deuteronomy 28, verse 18, one curse that follows disobedience is uh, upon the womb of the women. So... Uh, that that's one way of looking at it, but Alex, there may be another way of looking at it, right? Yeah. On the other hand, Moab is not one of the nations specifically listed in Deuteronomy seven or Exodus thirty-four, and the nations listed there that were prohibited for intermarriage, um, those were the seven nations to be completely destroyed and disposed of during the uh, conquest period. So. If you think about it, Moab, along with Ammon, uh, those are the descendants of Lot, so the relatives of Israel. Edom, the Edomites, those are descendants of Esau, so those are also relatives to Israel. And if you go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 2, you see that Yahweh specifically commands the Israelites not to provoke or to bother or to incite uh, any kind of conflict between them and Moab, Ammon, and Edom. And he says, because uh, I've given them their lands, uh, what they have is theirs, 
and your relatives. And so don't touch them, don't bother them, don't provoke them. Pay for everything you use there for your water, your food, everything. So there seems to be no law being violated in any explicit way by these two、uh, boys marrying Moabite women. Although I think Israelites would probably see that as not the ideal situation.、Uh, you would likely you know, want, it seems, somebody of Israelite、uh, lineage. And so it seems like. Extenuating circumstances. You know, they are in the land of Moab. They don't know when they're going to go back to Judah. When will the famine end? So they、uh, make do with、uh, where they're at and they settle down and they choose Moabite women for、uh, wives for the two sons. So that's sort of another way of looking at it, Nick.、Mm-hmm. Well, what else do we see in the story? So, verse 6,、um, there's word that comes to Naomi that God, the Lord, Yahweh, he has visited his people and given them food. So, Alex, talk a little about how did God visit his people to give them food? Sure.、Um, as you mentioned earlier, the Covenant barometer, so to speak, for Israel was agriculture.、Mm-hmm. When God described the promised land, he says that it's not like Egypt where they came from in Egyptian slavery. It's different. This is in Deuteronomy 11, verses 10 through 12. You see, Egypt used irrigation, they depended upon the yearly flooding of the Nile, and that's how they got their、uh, food. But the promised land relies upon the rains. And God promises the rain will come if his people keep covenant. It's a conditional promise. The Moabites, they worshiped Baal. That was one of their gods. And Baal was a storm god. He was the cloud rider. He was worshiped as a warrior god and as the bringer of rain for productive agriculture. And so here we see that Yahweh visiting his people, he shows himself then to be the real cloud rider. He visits his people to give them food, in other words, productive agriculture, by causing the rains to come and to come at the right time and in the right proportion. So, the promised land,、uh, just as a reminder, it was too hilly. It was a very hilly country, and that was too difficult to irrigate. And so, either the rains come or they starve. And that was dependent upon their covenant faithfulness. What do, you, do you see anything else here, Nick, about God visiting his people, giving them food? Well, just, just as we mentioned, the irony in a good story、uh, the house of bread now has bread once more. There we go. Reversal.、Uh, exactly. And, and so, in short, God, he's broken the famine.、Um, maybe there had been a call for national repentance and revival. I mean, that's kind of typical that you see in the cycle of the judges. Uh, during uh, Israel's history, then, where they would turn from God, they'd run into trouble, but then they'd repent and God would send them a judge. So maybe they had responded in faith and God, in kind, responded in faithfulness as well, just in the way that you're describing.、So. Yeah. Well, Nick, there's another question, though.、Um, to back up one verse, in verse 5, Naomi. Her husband Elimelech dies. Her two sons,、uh, Malin and Kilian, die. 
it doesn't say how. Um, so, you know, we just were left with silence on that. But if that's her position, Nick, how precarious does that uh, position look that Naomi now finds herself in without her husband, without her sons? Yeah. Um, it's very precarious. Um, in a word, it's dire. Yes. <laughs> um, not only would there be the, the mourning and the weeping, um, which, uh, which is what we see here, but, uh, just that sense of loss over the deaths they would also it would be followed by poverty um, indebtedness lack of economic support that is what accompanied widows in the ancient near east and so it seems that naomi kind of knows that i think that's why she encourages her daughters-in-law to return to their homeland is because she knows this is this is bad news right. uh, for everyone involved. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think that's that's definitely right. And uh, for today, it seems we often take for granted things like life insurance, right? Welfare, job opportunities, ease of transportation to be with relatives for help. You know, even her journey back from Moab to Bethlehem, um, picking up and moving was not an easy task in the ancient world and highways weren't exactly safe or speedy so <laughs> this is definitely i think the word you uh used was dire well nick um as we move further into chapter one we see naomi grieving right she's in this dire circumstance she's grieving and in verse 13 she expresses some of her feelings. She says, um, the hand of Yahweh has gone forth against me. God did, uh, Nick, did God determine that Naomi should lose her husband and sons? Ooh, man. I mean, that's, that's a question a lot of people ask, uh, when it comes to the death of a loved one. Sure. Yeah. Um, did, did God take this person or or why did God take this person kind of assuming taking for granted that he did um, and it is interesting especially for Naomi and I think this will come out the deeper we get into the chapter I mean she's she's a a member of the covenant people with uh, the covenant God Yahweh and she actually in verse 8 invokes blessing upon her daughters-in-law Verse 8 and 9, may the Lord deal kindly with you, and then uh, Yahweh grant that you may find rest. So it's striking that Naomi essentially blames God for the deaths of her husband and sons. Right. And so while Yahweh is visiting his people with food, Naomi believes she's being visited with tragedy. Yeah. And one author summed it up this way. I mean, she says she changes her name to Mara, which means bitter. And so one author said, Naomi is a bitter old woman who blames God for her crisis. Naomi feels she is the target of God's overwhelming power and wrath. She essentially accuses God of injustice. Hmm. Did God do this? Man, that's a tough question. I'm inclined just because... So if you turn a couple pages to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 2, you're introduced to this principle which is all throughout your Bible. 
And this is just one example where it says uh, in 1 Samuel 2, verse 6, Yahweh kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. So there was this understanding, at least in the Old Testament, that God's the one who's in charge of life and death. And so it, it may be, it may be that indeed um, Naomi understood that, but she received it in a less than positive way. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it certainly, to me, seems silent within the text, uh, at least in Ruth. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so um, we know what Naomi's answer would be. She says, Yahweh did this to me. His hand is against me. Uh, though no, Naomi blames God, I'm not sure if the text validates her accusation. Uh, like I said, it seems to be silent on that accusation. It's obvious that she's grieving. She's bitter. You can almost imagine her as uh, Job's wife. If you remember when all the calamities came upon Job and his family, he's sitting there with sores, right, scratching himself with broken shards of pottery. And his wife says, uh, why don't you just curse God and die? (laughs) So you can almost imagine, like, that's how she feels. Should Naomi be seen as a Job-like character, stricken simply as a test of faith? by Satan through the direct permission of Yahweh? Perhaps. But in this case, I do lean towards viewing her suffering as a natural result of unfortunate circumstances, not as a supernatural result of testing. I don't believe that Yahweh emptied her, but I think the story is going to make clear that he will be the one who fills her back up. So that's where I land on that for this particular story. But Mm -hmm. Uh, like you said, that verse in Samuel, you know, there is the other side of the coin where Yahweh does bring down and he does raise up. And so, well, um, moving, tough questions, tough questions. That yeah. should have been the tough text of the day. <laughs> it's right. Tough text. So verse 15, we move deeper into the dialogue with uh, Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. We come across Naomi telling Ruth, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. And that brings a question, Alex. Is Naomi encouraging her daughter-in-law to commit idolatry? (laughs) It certainly sounds that way. Go back to your gods. Right. And she doesn't even word it in a negative way. Like, that's, that's what you do. Go back to your gods. So Yahweh was Israel's God, and Israel was Yahweh's people. God gave the other nations over to lesser gods. These are created beings. They're real. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 19 through 20. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 through 9. Make sure you're reading the English Standard Version there. Um, This was a given in the Old Testament. A nation's gods were limited to the portion of land in which their people dwelt. They were territorial spirits and rulers. The New Testament refers to them as um, authorities and rulers in the heavenly places. Now, if one lives in Moab, then one is no longer in Yahweh's territory. It doesn't mean Yahweh's not the most high God, but it just means he has his people in his territory and he's working out his own plan. Naomi's statement makes complete sense in the ancient Near Eastern context and within the narrative of the Old Testament regarding origins. Where do all these people come from? Well, all nations come from Babel, Hmm. except for Israel, 
which was especially created for Yahweh. Converting the nations, uh, the Gentiles, converting them into Yahweh worshipers, that was not really on the radar yet. That's not really their focus. Their focus was to stay separate from the nations. It was important to stay separate specifically in the ways prescribed by the law. So Naomi doesn't encourage her daughter-in-laws to commit idolatry because idolatry is the default for all nations. Only Israelites can commit idolatry, at least in the sense of breaking covenant or breaking the law of Moses. And so it's that backdrop that makes Ruth's uh, following statements about making Yahweh her God so powerful. So that's uh, my thoughts on on the gods. Nick, what do yeah, you think? And, well, and just and just the way this is worded, right? Your sister in law has gone back to her people, right, and to her gods. So you right, get, you get a lot of that national identity, at least with the ethnicity aspect, right? The Moabites, right, and also the theological perspective. Of, and they got their gods, right? So, That's right. Uh, next verse, verse 16. Um, Ruth chooses solidarity with Naomi. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. So how does Ruth going to Judah relate to her receiving Naomi's God? What is there something in the law that uh, brings some insight to that as well? Well, with the statement that we just you know previously made about territorial spirits and things like that there are other verses that come into play especially regarding ruth as a foreigner and now naomi as a widow so ruth is going to yahweh's territory the land of israel foreigners are welcome in israel and according to the law they're not even obligated to follow everything in the law of Moses. Like, for example, they don't have to follow the same dietary restrictions. That's uh, Deuteronomy 14.21. Hmm. And even though they're foreigners, they still received the same legal protection regarding labor oppression and uh, justice within the uh, court system. So that's Deuteronomy 24, uh, verses 14 and following. The foreigner, along with the orphan, the widow, the Levite, those are grouped together as the most vulnerable people in Israelite society. And so they need extra assistance. And they were provided for through special tithes. The law of Moses acknowledges their need and provides for their need. So the foreigner, they even get to share in the offering of the first fruits along with the Levites. That's in Deuteronomy 26, verse 10 and following. So uh, that first fruits idea, keep that in your, in your mind as we get to a question later on. But the Israelites, they were supposed to show love to the foreigners around them because uh, they used to be foreigners in Egypt. And Yahweh shows love to the foreigners. That's in Deuteronomy 10, verses 18 through 19. And the foreigners still had obligations, though. If they were going to be in Yahweh's territory, they still had to listen to the law, especially during sacred readings, like during the Feast of Booths, uh, especially in the seventh year reading. That's Deuteronomy 31, verses 10 and following. And obviously, the foreigner cannot worship other gods while in Yahweh's territory. Uh, that would be the, the most high offense that one could commit. So the law makes a way for foreigners like Ruth to live among the Israelites. We can call that assimilation. But Ruth goes above and beyond that. It sounds like she doesn't just want to assimilate. She wants to be the same as Naomi. 
She doesn't say, I want to be a foreigner. She says, I want your people to be my people. So that's above and beyond. Such a statement goes beyond assimilation and should probably be viewed as a true conversion story to full Israelite status. And that's not uh, new to Israel. I mean, they had a lot of people who weren't bloodline Israelites who came out from Egypt with them and assimilated into the tribes and took on tribal names uh, like Caleb. But the story that unfolds with Naomi and Ruth can be seen as the legitimization of Ruth's conversion. And since Yahweh reverses their bitterness to fullness, such a story would compel future generations to accept David's heritage, even though it contained a Moabite woman. And this uh, connects to a theme throughout all of Scripture, and that is the righteous shall live by faith. Ruth is going to be shown to be righteous and a true uh, converted Israelite, even though she is of Moabite origin. And that's, I think, going to be important for the purpose for which the book was written in the first place. Nick, what do you think? I think you pretty well upholstered that subject. Yeah, that's uh, <clears throat> well done. Well, Nick, uh, at the end of chapter one, again, we have Naomi attributing her bereavement to God's actions. God did this. Is Naomi correct, Nick? What do you think? Uh, so once again, uh, you're right. We see that she blames the Almighty, El Shaddai. He has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, but Yahweh has brought me back empty. So Yahweh, the Almighty, he is responsible for the calamity. And she claims somewhat uh, paradoxically as well to have been full when she left during the famine a decade ago. Um, and yet there's no hint that Naomi credits Yahweh for her fullness when she left. Hmm. Um, in her mind, Yahweh, though, is certainly to blame for her emptiness in her return. Uh, the Almighty has testified, she says, uh, which is an interesting word. Um, we've talked about the divine council before. That seems to have been where the Almighty testified against Naomi, was in the divine council. He's declared her guilty of something, and she deserves the bitter calamity which has befallen her, oh. uh, which is why Naomi says, you call me Mara now because I am uh, God has dealt bitterly with me. Uh, so there's, there's that aspect um, to this. Also, somewhat paradoxically as well, Naomi will return home at first word that Yahweh has provided food in the land. And she will even invoke a blessing. We talked about that earlier in verses 8 and 9. Uh, she invokes a blessing upon her daughters-in-law in Yahweh's name, but then is going to turn right around and exhort them to return to their gods in verse 15, just like we talked about as well. Hmm. Makes me wonder, makes me think that it seems like Naomi... Rather than being someone who is strong in faith, is actually betraying a relatively weak faith that I think characterizes a lot of people today. God regularly gets all the blame and none of the credit. All the blame when things are going bad and none of the credit when things are going good, which uh, may not be the most accurate way of looking at things. Uh, does that make sense? Absolutely. And in fact, uh, I think you've accurately portrayed Naomi's perspective, and it may be that her perspective is so clearly seen this way 
so that the story could prove that the opposite is true. Right. Irony abounds again, right? Interestingly, we have Naomi here with a weak faith, but who will be the one that is instrumental in changing Naomi's fortune? It will be Ruth, a Gentile, because of her excellent portrayal of faith. Again, irony continues to abound. Nick, the story ends with Naomi and Ruth back in Bethlehem and the timing in which they have arrived and settled back in is during the barley harvest. Is there any significance, Nick, to the timing of their return at the barley harvest? So barley, the barley harvest would have been the first crop to be harvested each year. Yes. And so Ruth and Naomi arriving at barley harvest time, they could get settled in with... uh, uh, with the people, but also with when the food is is plentiful, they could even get enough to to store up for themselves for the dry season as well. So this may anticipate this is just as the uh, just at the beginning of the barley harvest to mark there's fullness in the land, and it's made, it, there's some foreshadowing here of what's to come for Naomi that her fullness will return as well. Uh, Do you find anything else, Alex? Yes, um, I completely agree with your your fullness uh, comments there. When Naomi left Judah, she was leaving a land that was empty from famine. But she was full with regard to her family. She had husbands, she had sons. When she returns, the land is full in produce, but she herself was empty and bitter, without husband, without sons. The timing seems both poetic and providential. And I think the question arises... Will Yahweh fill her up again? And how will he do so? The barley harvest, uh, as you said already, marks the beginning of the harvest season, the first fruits of which were offered as a wave or sheaf offering right after the Passover. And so Passover's still fresh in the mind of people, and Passover signified Yahweh's deliverance of his people. So again, the question arises, will Yahweh deliver Naomi? from her bitterness. And thus enters my favorite theme in the whole Bible, divine reversal. hey Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Divine reversal. Well, Nick, this brings us to our um, new section uh, for this inaugural season two episode. What are we doing? So this segment is called One Minute Sermons. I stole this, borrowed, adapted from um, some other guys who did this um, in a different time, location, place, all that. <laughs> Basically, it goes like this. Um, and, and here's the rationale for it first, I guess. We, both Alex and I, were both preachers, and we know that Sunday's coming, and so this is our way. We're, we're preachers, and we love preachers. And so if you're a preacher, you're listening, great. This is for you specifically. We want to give you uh, the beginnings of your Sunday morning and Sunday evening uh, sermons. And so uh, what we're going to do is we each have selected song titles, and this is actually from any genre of music. We each have a song title. I'll have one for Alex. He has one for me. And 
what we're going to do, we've got to provide a text and the beginnings of a sermon based on these song titles. <laughs> and All right. we have not had time to prepare. Well, yeah, we have no preparation here. Yeah, yeah. This is not scripted at all. We're winging it. Yeah. So, so do you want to go first? You want me to go first? I just think that means people should be either extra impressed or have low expectations. So, <laughs> <laughs> or both. Uh, how about uh, how about you go first? Okay. Okay, Nick. I'm going to give you a softball this time. All right. All right. All right. Your song title for your one minute sermon today is "Stairway to Heaven" by Led Zeppelin. <laughs> Stairway. Starting to heaven. now. Of course, you got to go to the story in Jacob's life, and it's in Genesis 28. Nice. Where he's. He has this dream, and he sees this stairway, and the angels are ascending, descending to heaven, back down. And he has a conversation with God. There's some promises made which are significant to redemptive history and the eternal purposes of God. What I want to key in on is the statement that Jacob makes there, yeah, in verse 17. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. The gate of heaven, what Jacob doesn't know is that actually there is one who is coming who will be the gate or the door. That's Jesus. And Jesus actually picks up on the this, uh, this story in John chapter 1 where he, when talking... And that's one minute. <laughs> verse 51, John chapter 1. <laughs> Truly you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is the gate to heaven, the true gate to heaven. Come forward and be baptized. Drop the mic. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. I think we're going to get better at these as we go along. I'm uh, fearful of what I have to preach about now. <laughs> Steal thyself, Alex. One minute on the clock. The Are you song the timer? I have selected. I have a timer, just like you said it for me. <laughs> okay. Cut me off at one minute. I'll cut you off. Um, the song I've selected for you is by Sting. His song, Fields of Gold. <laughs> I've, never, one minute. I've never even heard that song. <laughs> you just need the title. Here we go. Fields of Gold, one minute, go. Yes. Fields of Gold. You know, Jesus told a story about a field in which a man knew was buried underneath its soil, hidden treasure, perhaps gold, uh, fine pearls, jewelry, gems. But that man knew something that other people didn't know, so he kept that treasure buried there. He went out and he bought that field with all that he had, paid a great price for it, and then he comes back and he digs that treasure back up and he rejoices that he has bought, in essence, a field of gold. Because it wasn't what people saw from the outside that was valuable, but it's what Jesus knew was on the inside. And we are that field of gold that Jesus has paid the price for. Come be baptized. Well done, sir. That was one minute exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. 
Matthew chapter 13. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. One minute sermons. Yeah, there you go. All right. I'm going to have to go listen to that song now. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else from Ruth chapter one that you want to bring up, Alex? Um, you know, I think we'll just leave the audience in suspense. We'll pick up in chapter two next week. I, I don't I, I don't have any final thoughts. Do you, Nick? Just one thing. Okay. As you were talking in our, um, what, penultimate question um, about how God was going to bring about a change of fortune for Naomi through the Gentile Ruth, <clears throat> I couldn't help but think of what Paul talks about in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, especially chapter 11, how God is, he was using the Gentiles in order to somehow make Israel jealous. Ah, yes. Uh, it's, there's got to be a connection there where... You know, God through the Gentiles is trying to bring about a reversal of fortune, divine reversal of fortune um, for his people uh, that Paul talks about there in Romans um, uh, chapter 11. So, right. Just kind of an illustration of, of that in the Old Testament. Yeah, thanks for that New Testament update. I always enjoy seeing the connections between Old and New Testament because there's so many there, right? And. The better we know the Old Testament, the better we can appreciate the New Testament. So that's definitely part of the rationale behind us going through the book of Ruth. So I appreciate that thought, Nick. Um, What else do we need to tell our listeners? Yeah, go to, uh, let's see, the Play Store. Google Play. Yeah, Google Play. Yeah, Google Play. Yeah. Yeah. Or go to iTunes. And search Swordplay. All of our all the episodes of the podcast are there. Season one, complete season one, there for you. And now also season two. So that's where you can find it as well. Uh, is uh, in those respective stores. And we'll leave those instructions within the episode description as well. And we uh, definitely want you to send us questions. If you have any questions, send them to SwordplayPodcast at gmail dot com. Also, be sure to write us a review. Um, on your favorite podcast app. Uh, Give us a a rating that you think appropriate to the uh, benefit this podcast has been to you. And uh, share this, repost this on social media, Facebook, Twitter, whatever platform that you prefer. And uh, let's spread this around. So thanks for listening to the first episode of Swordplay Season 2. And we'll see you next time on another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.